What happens when you take an iconic genre, a three-time Oscar-nominated creator, and a pack of identical white men? A show that's dead on arrival. Grab a cigar and a stiff drink, because this is Mob Mob City. Dearly departed, are you listening? We will remember all about you. When you were cancelled, we were trembling. We can't believe that they would doubt you. We won't forget you and the rest. Dearly departed, dearly departed. Oh, I love that I can um, record this entire podcast while staring at your mom. Yes, that's the fun part about using my mom's Zoom account. You get to see this beautiful picture of her with the flowers. Oh my God, how are you? You know what? I'm doing pretty good. I definitely think that it was the right idea to come here. (laughs) For everyone Um, wondering, um, Abby is home in Falmouth, on the Cape. Yeah. Please, no one come for me for traveling because I honestly can't handle criticism and I'll implode. I mean, you did it as safely as possible. I did. And you know what? We're COVID-free. We've been testing. I'm quarantining with my parents. It's so nice out here. It feels way less like the apocalypse. Because it's not 90 degrees. Like in LA, it's 90 degrees, there are earthquakes, there's ash falling from the sky. It just really feels like the end of days. And then you come to Massachusetts, and it's like 70, 65, blue skies, the ground stays in one place. Um, I can like, there's nobody in my hometown. It's like so much less populated that you can go for like a neighborhood walk without a mask because there's like no one around. So it just... I mean, I always take my mask with me, but it just is way less scary to live. I'm so jealous. Well, look, as you mentioned, it literally does feel like end of days here. And that is the only explanation that we have to give for our little hiatus. Although it's not as long as it could have been, frankly. I mean, we just moved and we got this new roommate and we started rewatching Buffy. And who has time to podcast when you're doing the things you love, you know? Exactly. You know, it's the start of the spooky season and our new roommate, Anya, host of the Girls Who Cried Be Horror, of course, we have to be watching horror movies every night. So... Have you guys been doing the, like, Halloween schedule that she made? Well, her thing is um, that we can skip the movies if she has seen them and logged them. But also, she doesn't make me watch them with her, right? Like, if I say I don't want to watch it and we watch Survivor season one, um, she'll just watch it on her own time. Um, But she did tell me that, you know, she won't watch any non-spooky movies during Halloween, which I really um, respect that dedication, you know, that I mean, what other kind of movies would you want to watch anyway? Um, I don't know, maybe a Netflix coming-of-age comedy? I mean, I'm so glad you haven't watched Chemical Hearts without me. (laughs) We might have to save that for November. Oh, lordy. So, 
The end of days is really the, I'm sorry to say, the only explanation for why we picked this, <laughs> this <laughs> fucking rat shit show. <laughs> so <I'm- laughs> I think, you know, we've done teen shows and we love them. Yeah. We did right. a religious conspiracy epic. We've yes. done reality TV, so right. we wanted to shake things up. And was this the right move? I have to say that I can't live with regrets when it comes to the show. Right. So you're just choosing to kind of believe that it was the right choice. I have to respect that. You know what? It was six episodes. It was not as breezy as I anticipated, but we got through it. Were they half-hour episodes? No, they were, they were full hour. Some of them were even, I okay. think, 50 minutes. Well, the finale was literally 30 minutes, I'm pretty sure. Um, Am I wrong? Well, the thing is that they have really long action sequences and scenes that convey nothing. So when I was transcribing my notes for episode five, it was really short, but it's like I know this episode was 45 minutes. Yeah, I... I can't, I don't know how I can tell the minute length just from looking at like wiki, but I'm not convinced that <laughs> the finale episode was not only 30 minutes long. I mean, it felt like really long, but. Right. Let me look right here. Let's take a look see. Let's take a peek see. Um, well, oh no, it was 42 minutes. So they're all like 40 minute episodes. Yes, yes. So. Uh, should we dive in? Should we get to it? Yeah. Do you have a little like pre-information to well, supply? Before, before Mob City, I do have a tiny correction on our last episode, which by the way, oh, was right. so much fucking fun. The Lucy Hale special. I loved having right. Mystery Tom and Jesse on. Um, you have a correction? Well, so I accidentally said that Bionic Woman aired on Sci-Fi but I think I was just trying to convey that it was a sci-fi. It actually aired on NBC. That was my only Bionic correction. Woman. What did I say? Okay. You might have said it was on sci-fi. Yeah. I, I, I did. I listened back. Um, but that's my only correction, so... It's been so long since I listened back to that special. I probably said a whole bunch of incorrect things, but I'll never know. Uh, but like Mob City, we can't live with regrets. So, Mob City is a crime neo-noir that aired on TNT December of 2013. 2013 was such a fucking era. The way 2013 gave us Zero Hour and Mob City. We just can't escape 2013. I still feel like I'm living in it somehow. And Smash, our favorite show. Well, season two of Smash, right? I think so, yeah. So the show is based on John Button's book, L.A. Noir: The Struggles for the Soul of America's Most Seductive City. As someone who lives in L.A., I can say it's not the most seductive city. In fact, it's a daily struggle to stay. Um, but it is a historical nonfiction, and based on the Goodreads synopsis, it focuses mostly on Mickey Cohen, and who, who's a mobster protege, and William H. Parker, who will become the police chief who's committed to toppling, you know, the criminal organizations running L.A., which um, I would say is not what Mob City is. 
if that's what the book is about is Mickey versus the cop, the show brings on this like fictional lead character, Joe Teague. And it really follows him. But it is true that the show is a little bit more about cops than it is about the mob. It's true. Well, the, the creator did say, you know, he didn't go into it wanting to make a docu-drama, you know? Right. So, and you know what? He absolutely did not. So I it's guess true. He- It's true. Um, that said creator is Frank Darabont, who um, is a three-time Oscar nominee. <laughs> okay. Known for what? F- known for writing um, the iconic A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors. Starring our girl Patricia oh Arquette. He I also love that movie. <laughs> he also wrote the 80s remake of The Blob. The Blob? Yes. Oh my god, that movie's really good too. I know. Um, and he directed The Shawshank Redemption as well as The Green Mile. Oh. <laughs> Shawshank Redemption is really good. <laughs> Okay, respect. Well, respect. It's always really funny to see who is behind these shows, and you always have to just yeah. scratch your head. Like, I mean, look, everybody makes mistakes, and this just goes to show that you're not defined by your canceled show. You would can you do say, other great things. Would you say this creator then doing Mob City, you know, from Shawshank to Mob City, is better or worse than Ashton Kutcher producing The Beautiful Life, Colin TBL? I think that for Ashton Kutcher, it was a money grab <laughs> that failed to make him money. Like, he probably thought he was going to make a bunch of money for producing this show. Right, right. Um, I guess I don't really believe it was a passion project, although I could be <laughs> totally wrong. I think mm-hmm. with Mob City, he really thought, like, this guy really maybe thought he was doing something. Right. Um, he did something. Something. Right. He say. did six episodes. That's what he did. Um but it's like not really a stain on his legacy since he directed Shawshank Redemption. I think he's going to go down in history as, you know, a successful, talented person. So this, I don't, I don't think it's so detrimental to his career that he made this show. Um, despite the fact that I thought it was abysmal. <laughs> Frank, um, while in development, stated that the show would likely explore various cultures, including African American and Hispanics. Um, it the show not. did not. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot even believe he said that. You know, is that what he had in store for like episode seven? Because there's only white people on this show. I cannot. There's, I, je ne sais pas. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> there's um, one black bartender. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who has one line, and I'm pretty sure she's just kind of there to be a sexual object. And then there's Bunny, who runs Bunny's Jungle Club, which right. is like a jazz bar. And he has like one scene, and that's it. And then it's white people. Um, but you know what? They're Jewish. That's right. That's fucking right. So maybe he should have just been honest. This is a show about Jews. That's great. Don't lie. Don't lie. Don't claim the show is about thing, things that it's not about. I mean, I, I, I'd be interested to, you know, take a look at that first, that first beat board, you know, that first outline and see, <laughs> see maybe what was happening there. Well, I do want a trigger warning. This is like 
not really typically something that we do, but there is like a really brief um, rape on this show that I was not expecting. No. Um, <laughs> I, truly, what? I mean, I gasped. Um, and then this is not really trigger warning, but just to kind of address him claiming that this show was going to be racially diverse. Um, one of the lead characters is like a known racist IRL, and they just totally erased that. One of the actors or one of the characters one of the cops. being portrayed? Okay. So I'm, wanna, I, I'm not going to get into it at the moment because I'm going to do this kind of rundown about like who they really were at the end. But th- this show is pretty much the furthest thing from diverse um, that you can really find. It's true. It's true. Should we jump in, though? Should we start breaking it down? I mean, it is a neo-noir, so that that's kind of up people's alley. I just didn't think it was really stylish enough to be like a true noir, but I mean, it was doing what it was doing. I think it was... I think period pieces are expensive at the end of the day, and I, I liked it. I thought it was appropriately stylish. I thought that... I mean, for me, the style and how the show looks and kind of the aesthetics of it are what I had fun with, why I didn't have maybe an awful time like you did. The story kind of just There's like really me. fun, I mean, there's fun costumes and yeah. there's um, hot actors. It was more like I didn't find the filmmaking to be particularly stylish. It, it the wasn't. Set, the set and like costumes was cool yeah yeah um so let's just I just want to run down the cast because it is a little crazy because throughout the show it was like a familiar face after a familiar face and it was kind of a head scratcher so our lead that we mentioned is Joe played by John Bernthal who you might recognize as Sean Shane Walsh on The Walking Dead he played the Punisher on Netflix's Daredevil and then got his own show and I didn't know how much this guy was working he was in The Wolf of Wall Street he was in Baby Driver Wind River Ford versus Ferrari I just feel like I've definitely seen this man before but I just didn't know he had a career you know what's his name John Bernthal Bernthal yes I would really challenge you to take a look at his picture on his Wikipedia page. (laughs) (laughs) Why? I'm nervous. (laughs) It's just really funny. It's him at San Diego Comic-Con and he's wearing like a sideways snapback. Oh, God. (laughs) Isn't that hilarious? Do, would Why you? is he wearing a hat like that? And that in 2017. Oh, I know. I know. Oh, but he went to he went to Skidmore and Harvard. Yeah, this guy's like low-key for real. And I know you hated the character. I didn't really care for the character. But, you know, he did what was asked of him. Which, at the end of the day, he's I, can't, hot. I can't be mad at. Yeah, he's hot. So, we were rocked to find out that his co-star is none other than, you know, a, a fan favorite on this show, Milo Ventimiglia. Right. The way that we accidentally picked another Milo Ventimiglia show, we didn't even know. The way that we were going to do a different Milo Ventimiglia follow-up, but then decided to do this show because we wanted to shake it up and Milo was also in it. Earth shattering. The universe. What does this mean? The universe listening to our prayers. 
The cast also includes Emmy Award winner Jeremy Strong, who you might um, recognize from Succession, plays Kendall. I am like... People really like that show. I'm like oddly attracted to him on this show. Like, I'm not going to lie about it. He's handsome. He wears Hawaiian shirts, you know. He's, I think, supposed to be a good guy. I don't really... Who's to say? He kind of disappears later in the show. Yeah. He's yeah. not he's not an essential character. No. We also have Neil uh, I should have looked up how to pronounce these names. McDonough? Neil McDonough? M C D probably. McDonough. Um, who I know from Desperate oh, Housewives. He's on the CW's the Arrowverse, you know, as they like to call it. He's so he's working, he's doing his thing. The only female lead character. Alexa Davalos is also She's really the only female character at all. It's, it's true. It's true. It's true. She is an angel, apparently. So we're currently rewatching Buffy, and then we, me and Abby, are going to watch Angel for the first time when it gets to that point in the series. So I'm excited to, you know, see this girl. I thought she also did what was asked of her. I thought she was good. Like, I got the sense that she was a good actor. And she's She's still working. She fit really well in the 1940s setting. She seemed really natural. I agree. Um, I I liked everything about her. She was also the only female character, so, like, God forbid I dislike her. But um, (laughs) I liked Um, her. I thought she was good. And she's still working. She's on that show, The Man in the High Castle. Yes, she is. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. for her. We have Edward Burns, from Saving Private Ryan, The Holiday, 27 Dresses. He was really handsome. He was really over the top for me. His character was a little hammy, but he plays Bugsy. Now, is he Jewish IRL? I always just kind of wonder because, no, he's not. He's Roman Catholic. You always wonder what? Interesting. Just like when you see Jewish characters, like a lot of the time they're played by actually Jewish actors, but a lot of the time they're played by like, Italians or <laughs> other I mean not so very much Jewish people the day that I found out that Catherine Zeta-Jones was Welsh was the day I stopped believing Hollywood cast authentically so <laughs> did you did you go through your life thinking Catherine Zeta-Jones was a Latina I guess I, I mean I didn't think about it at all you know it, it never crossed my mind that she wouldn't be we have Robert Lyle Nepper who from Prison Break which is a nice connection to 2013 Zero hour. I feel like it all connects. He's on Heroes. He he's on iZombie, and then the last member of the cast, um, who plays Mickey, who the book is centered around, Mickey um, Cohen, who is like an actual mobster, um, played by Jeremy Luke, has I would say maybe the least. Um, you know what? I'm not going to judge. But let's just say that he is most known for um, his starring role in the sci-fi movie Jersey Shore Shark Attack. Okay, so he's actually somebody on our level, actually somebody (laughs) that we respect, somebody doing the work that we want to see. Deadass. You know, I would watch that movie and forever stand. And he was also in that movie Don John. Um, He was good. I, I liked him. I thought he was one of the better characters well i think i didn't mind the aesthetics i thought it was fun i of course love a noir i love a good crime mystery and i thought the actors 
did a good job. It just comes down to, you know, the story. And even the dialogue I thought was hilarious. It conveyed nothing, but I really enjoyed it. I think it's interesting to me because Mickey Cohen is arguably like the most famous cast member, like character, as he was an actual mob bigwig in the Jewish mob in LA and like a huge influence on the Italian mob as well because they were kind of interconnected. They chose an unknown to play him, Mm -hmm. which is curious compared to their other casting. But um, should we start, should we start breaking down? Let's jump into episode one. Episode one titled A Guy Walks Into a Bar. We open on New York City. So we know it's a noir. It's 1925 and three semi-identical white men um, are walking through the street. The only uh, distinguishable factors are that one is hotter than the other two. They are walking through, you know, the grimy streets of New York with instrument cases. And they're stopped and frisked because the alley that they're walking by, there's clearly some sort of criminal activity going on. You know, I believe they're moving alcohol. It's prohibition. You know, shit's going down. So this guy is frisking them and he demands that they open their cases and inside just instruments. Okay, well, prove that you're a real musician. Play monkeys, play. And they do. And it's a beautiful, you know, beautiful violin melody. So the guy frisking them is like, okay, they're real musicians. Maybe they were just walking by. He's chill. He's not worried, which means it's fucking go time. So as they're playing their song, a woman passes passes them with a baby carriage, but she leaves the carriage behind and instantly the three of them dig into the basket, pull out machine guns, and suddenly it's raining bullets. How did you feel during this moment in the show? Um, I thought it was a strong opening. I agree. I agree. I was like, I thought it was fun that they were playing violin. I thought it was fun that they had, you know, a lady pretending to be a mother, but actually just leaving them machine guns. Um, I thought it was a powerful opening. So I would like to take note of woman with baby carriage because she is one of the few female characters that we get in episode one. So I see you girl. Thank you for your service. During the carnage, we get a voiceover by Joe. And he's telling us that, you know, the mobster with the dreamy eyes and movie star looks is named Bugsy. And he's going to invent Vegas. Great. I love it. He then tells us the second one, Meyer, is going to organize crime. Awesome. And the third Sid is a sociopath who's going to learn how to market that trait. The guns are still going, and the scene wraps up with the three of them stealing a car, presumably the one with all the alcohol, and then blowing up the remaining survivors. And as they drive off, the voiceover says, these are the guys that made the Roaring Twenties roar. (laughs) Oh my God, is this... Is this about to be my favorite show? No. (laughs) Jump ahead. We're in LA. It's 1947. And we meet Joe, who he's not living in a good versus evil kind of world. You know, he lives in a great one. Right. Right. Really unique. 
he comes home and he finds a matchbook in his mailbox and it leads him to a jazz club where he flirts with a gorgeous bartender, the second woman we will see in this episode. Right. She's black. She's fierce. She never gets another line. But she says... (laughs) They have this dialogue exchange where she's like, take me away, Joe. And he says, I'd crush you. And then she threatens to put a cigarette out in his eye. And it's one of these moments where it's like, wow, this is a noir. It just has me questioning everything. Like, do I not know how to flirt? Is this... Is this how you're supposed to do it? I mean, why don't you try threatening to put a cigarette out in someone's eye and see if that works for you? Okay, I'll report back. Thank you, thank you. So Joe is greeted by a stand-up comic named Nash, and he needs Joe's help. You know, he approaches him at the bar and he's like, so you're Joe, I need a pal. And Joe responds with, get a dog! (laughs) which I thought was really funny. Now, Nash, the comedian, is played by Simon Pegg, who is very famous. What has he been in? I I could have looked him up, but I just didn't. Do you know? He's an English actor, comedian, screenwriter. Um, He was in Shaun of the Dead. He's like the guy from Shaun of the Dead. Oh my gosh. That's what he's like most famous for. This cast Um, is like insane. But he was like also in The Force Awakens, apparently. (laughs) um look i that movie Um, also passed through me so oh my god now he's on the dark crystal show oh my god the one with the weird the weird creatures based on the jim henson movie um we need to talk about that show i mean people just know who sean Pegg is like he's like a big deal he's in the star trek movie um he's an atheist wow wikipedia has everything the way the wikipedia is my bible so i mean i would have to agree Nash explains that he is blackmailing someone in the mob and he needs Joe to back him up because this specific group, they don't kill cops. Kendall from Succession is in a Hawaiian shirt and he is watching Joe. He's watching Joe talk to Nash. He's looking really suspicious. We don't know what's happening. We cut away to a church where a different white man goes into a confessional. That Mm -hmm. white man is being followed by a different white man. And at this point... It's so so profound to me (laughs) that they think that we can tell these guys apart. Well, at this point, it's really clear to me that the show's main mystery is not going to involve cops or mobsters or femme fatales, but instead the main mystery will be me trying to distinguish these buffoons. I cannot tell these men apart. I don't know what's happening. At this point, I'm confused as to what the opening was in reference to because none of the men that we're meeting are these those three men. Well, we don't, it, we, they don't rest, reference it again until the finale. So it's, it's, it's absurd. And yet we keep watching. At this point, I feel like I was, I was just desperately trying to hold on to any hope I had that the show would be like really good. And I could just tell in your eyes that you were done. I mean, I was, I was checked out. Like I knew I wasn't going to like this show like 10 minutes in. That being said, I do have a lot to say about it. So it was not a wash. It wasn't a waste of, of podcasting time because I have my thoughts and opinions. Thank God. So the scene plays out with one. So there's two white men in the confessional booth. 
it ends with one of them shooting the other. Right. While a different man is watching from the outside. This scene, I don't believe, contributes to the overall plot in any way. Would you agree? Yes, but you know what? It's cool. It's stylish. You know, it's a murder <laughs> in a confessional booth. I like those kinds of visuals. I like it when they bring a little, you know, a little violence into the Catholic Church on TV. I think it creates an emotional response from the viewer. I will say it did top, you know, hot discount Oscar Isaac in Zero Hour breaking a guy's neck at a church. I feel like this, you know, just went one step further and I appreciated that. When you have like a would-be priest with a machine gun. It's hot. Yeah. So the following day, oh, before I move forward, I have to honor the third woman that we see in this episode. There is an old um, maiden type who is lighting candles in the church while this is happening. Isn't she like elderly? I did say old and maiden. You're so right. Yes, she's elderly. Yeah. The following day, we see a press conference where the mayor gives a speech about police corruption. Uh, so timely. Right. He's obsessed with police corruption. He is really obsessed. You know, he knows that it's a problem in LA in 1947. And I just wish people would acknowledge that it's a problem in the country in <laughs> 2020. No. It just seems like he's a little bit more concerned about police being in cahoots with the mob than he is about, you know, police brutality or racism within the police. When he says police corruption, he really means, you know, police being double agents and working for the Italian mob slash Jewish mob. So inside the town hall or whatever, we learn that Kendall from Succession is also a cop on this show. And he was just following Joe, just making sure that Joe is not corrupt. Um, but Joe tells the truth. He tells, he tells him exactly what Nash wanted. And he thinks that he should play along and see if he can find out which member of the mob is being blackmailed. And maybe this is a chance for them to take them down. Instantly, I know it's not going to work out. It's episode one. You know, they can't be that easy. Joe and a team of investigators are scheming and there's instantly a hitch in their plan because the rendezvous point for the blackmail is too exposed. So Joe is kind of going to be left to his own devices because the police strike team has to hide about three minutes away. So like if something goes wrong, Joe's on his fucking own. Joe and Nash arrive at the rendezvous point and Joe suggests that Nash just turn himself in. To which Nash responds with, um, don't confuse me for upstanding, which I liked. At this point, I have no feelings. I have no opinions on Joe. Did you get the sense that he was corrupt in this moment? Well, I hate the police. So <laughs> I, I'm not going to be giving the benefit of the doubt to any cop characters. I did get the sense that he was playing both sides. Um, I didn't get the sense that he was a by-the-book cop. Um, but I did have a feeling like he was up to, that he wasn't actually on Nash's side. Right. Because he is obviously playing both sides and he knows, you know, he told the cops that he was going to be assisting this guy with this blackmail scheme. 
So ultimately, I observed him as being on the side of the police. But to me, that is just as bad, right. if not worse, than being a member of the mob. Uh, we then get, I would say, the most powerful line of, of the show. Not because it's particularly profound, but just because it relates to me and my life. <clears throat> They're on an oil field or something overlooking LA, and they say, this city is so damn beautiful, but only from a distance. Up close, it's a gutter. Now, I'm sure they're referring to, you know, all the mob criminal activity. But for me, you know, it's more superficial. I think LA is ugly. Quote me. You're not a fan of the architecture. <laughs> That's definitely a one way to put it. Right. Joe finds out that Nash and Mickey go way back. So at this point, I'm racking through my brain trying to figure out what the names of the three men at the beginning were. I, right. I, at first, I thought Mickey was one of them. He is not. Just It two. was Meyer, Sid, and Bugsy. Correct. So I'm like, who the fuck is Mickey and why? Right? Anyway, Nash and Mickey, they're childhood friends. So the mob arrives, and it's the church killer. It's the guy, it's the guy who was dressed up as a priest who shot the other man at the church. And we learn that this is Sid, the sociopath. And he tells Nash that um, Mickey is not going to be happy with this, with what's about to happen. And Nash is like, I don't give a fuck, just give me the money. And, you know, he has a cop on his side. So the mob, Sid and, and his, his, his boy his right-hand man aren't going to try anything. Nash gives them the blackmail evidence, which is a strip of, um, like, film negatives, like photos. And instantly, Joe is shaken. At this point, okay, I'm trying to figure out what's happening. You know, does Joe realize that he's somehow in the photos? Does he have great vision? Does he have a bionic eye? No. Um, okay. I'm out of guesses because I don't know. And then the exchange goes off without a hitch. Nash gets his money. The mobsters leave. And suddenly, twist, Joe shoots Nash in the back of the head. What? What? Was he working with them the entire time? What's happening? Then he sets off the flare and alerts the cops. Yes, and when the, after he's murked this guy, and when the cops arrive, Joe just claims that he found Nash that way, and everyone seems to really believe him. I like that no one has questions. No one fucking questions him. He's so obviously up to no good. These cops are so stupid. <laughs> Why would the mob shoot Nash in the back of the head? They would shoot him straight on because they were having a conversation. Um, I have no answers for you, and neither does the show. It doesn't make sense. My interpretation with this was like, okay, either he was working for the mob the whole time, or what's more likely is that with his special bionic eye or whatever, he saw what the pictures were of, like he saw the negatives, and that changed his mind. Right. That's what, that's what we're left to assume. Yeah. That whatever was on those pictures is the reason why he changed his mind and decided to kill the comedian. 
As the episode winds down, Joe returns to that jazz club, and he is joined by, by, by Milo Ventimiglia. Right. Who seems to be, a, you know, a lawyer, a fixer for the mob. Yes. He's looking really good. He's looking really slicked back. I'm pretty sure Heroes was still on. I would, I would venture a guess that it was, you know, maybe episode or season three of Heroes. I could be wrong. Mm. Um, He's very attractive and very underused on this show. I would have to agree. Joe returns the money because he doesn't want Bugsy's money. At this point, I believe this is the first time that we hear Bugsy's name in the present, in, in the 1947 presence. So it's like, okay, we've got two out of the three now. In this scene, we learn that Joe doesn't work for the mob, but somehow Milo manipulated the situation. He connected Nash to Joe, knowing that Joe would kill Nash. And it's unclear why. You know, are they lovers? Joe and Milo. It's what I'm hoping for. Um, it's not the reality. The show is neither gay nor sexy, I would say. So it was Milo's idea for Nash to go to Joe for assistance. Yes, knowing that he, Joe would inevitably kill Nash once he right. knew what the blackmail evidence was. Yeah. So there, then, there's something going on here that we're not privy to quite yet. Correct. And then a voiceover tells us that Joe didn't kill for money. He killed for love. And the episode ends with a shot of a girl named Jasmine. She hasn't spoken a word throughout the episode, but she is Nash's main piece. And at one point earlier, we saw them wake up together. And at some point he called her and told her that she needed to pack her things and that they would run away together. So whatever Nash was up to, whatever he was doing to blackmail the mob was going to ultimately come back to bite him and his girlfriend, Jasmine, who apparently Joe cares about in some capacity. Yes. So that's the end of episode one. What were your reactions? Were you ready to jump into season two or episode two? Were you just Um, I had a general sense of malaise. Um. But I had high hopes. I did have high hopes. I mean, I, 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 and, and was I ultimately disappointed or did I get what I expected? Um, we'll see. So Mob City episode two is called Reason to Kill a Man, which is something that, as far as we know, Joe did not have. <laughs> the episode opens in LA in 1922 with another flashback and we see three children hold up a movie theater with only baseball bats and steal a bunch of money from the movie theater Um, and we're told that the head kid who's committing this atrocious act of violence is mickey cohen who grows up to want to be one of the the big boys in the la mob now their act of violence is witnessed by a young blonde teenage boy. Um, he looks like a member of the Hitler Youth. I would have I don't to, like to agree. I don't like to throw that around. I know that it is really um, mean to say, <laughs> but he does. He does grow up to be, you know, a nasty, nasty piggy cop. 
So I have to stand by what I said. Then we jump forward to 1927, where this blonde man joins the police force with passion. He really wants to reform the police force from the inside. And, you know, people don't love him because he's really intense, but he gets the job done. He's really good at being a cop. And we get to see him disarm a hostage situation through violence. Um, <laughs> and because of that, he gets promoted. And ultimately, he grows up to be Bill, the um, police captain who kind of runs the show. So at this moment, it's kind of clear that, you know, we have who we're supposed to take believe are the big evil, you know, the mobsters. Then we have yeah. this one single cop who I think is supposed to be a shining beacon of morality and hope. And then we have everyone right. else in between. Right. But in my mind, you know, they can all choke. Right. I don't really care for any of them. But, um, but this blonde guy, you know, he grows up to be Neil McDonough Bill, the police captain. So then we jump forward to 1947, the Clover Club. Now, the Clover Club is a club that's run by Mickey Cohen, the crime lord. It's jazzy, Something, it's fun, it's sparkly. I would love it if, you know, we could go there. Right. So the 1940s setting for the show is really my favorite detail of the show. And I did take note here that the ties that the gentlemen wear are really their own character and potentially the most interesting character on the show. <laughs> They're like the short but wide ties with really loud prints, um, which you really only see in like the 40s. I know they did big ties in the 80s as well, but the like short and big with the loud pattern is such a unique vibe. Um, I do have a lot of respect for the costume designer of this show who really brought it with the ties. Um, so these crime bosses are sitting together with Milo, their lawyer, looking at the photos that Joe provided for them, the blackmail photos. Then we cut to the police who have brought in Jasmine to interrogate. And just Jasmine, of to course, clarify, those the photos are not, they haven't been developed. They're just the negative. So like, I think we, we even still don't get to see what we don't. Yeah. We don't know what they're of. We just know that they are of great importance to these crime bosses who are Bugsy Siegel and Mickey Cohen. Basically, they're like the two big boys. Um, so the police bring in Jasmine to interrogate. Um, the her cover story is that she thinks Nash died because he was a stamp collector. I get it. Right. So apparently she thinks that he got involved in some kind of messy stamp exchange with other stamp aficionados. Um, she claims to have no idea about the blackmail. And she says that her bags that she was packing were for a weekend trip. At she this keeps point, a very cool I, head. At this point, I am blown away that they're letting her talk. You know, after episode one, I wasn't sure. I wasn't That she was going to get any dialogue at all. Yes. Um, you know, I can tell that this bitch is lying, but I do respect that she keeps a really cool head during the interrogation. Um, the, the cops, like, lightly threaten her. I think they, they also don't really believe that she's telling the truth, but they don't have any evidence to bring her in on. And Teague, Joe Teague, insists on taking her home. 
Now, at this point, he's driving her home. I didn't really catch a vibe that they knew each other. No. Which I think, to me, just kind of goes to show how little mental effort I was putting into. Um, I don't think that's the case, Abby. I don't think that's the case at all. I don't want you to sell yourself short. I want you to blame the show because that is where the blame belongs. It's just that they large, you know, they very largely implied that he was in love with her at the end of episode one. And I just poof, like disappeared from my memory when I was watching this. So it did not occur to me that they were acquainted. Um, Well, because they don't act like they're acquainted. And at the end of episode one, it's like this man has never seen this woman as far as we know. Yeah. There's just no interact. There's no way that we could have known, and they they don't even hint at it. Right. So he drives her home. They have meaningless drivel conversation. As he's dropping her off, um, a skinny creep with a facial scar comes up to the vehicle, and he doesn't he doesn't see that a cop is driving it, and he kind of like leers at Jasmine, and it's creepy, and he says that he's been waiting for her for hours. Um, I have. I put in no effort to learn the name of this character. Correct. Um, however, I have saved him in my notes as Mr. Skinny. Yes. Because he's kind of a skinny legend. He's very bony. He has that slender man look. <laughs> um, so he will be Mr. Skinny from here on out. Jasmine evades him and goes into her apartment where we see that she is a photographer. Now, I did use a little bit of deductive reasoning here to assume that Jasmine was, in fact, the photographer behind the blackmail photos. Abby, that is absolutely crazy. The way that you would believe that a woman in the 1940s could develop film? I know. I'm a wishful thinker. I'm dreamy. (laughs) You know, what can I say? Um, I'm, I'm hopeful. So At she this point, I was once her- again, though, I will say I was once again blown away. I'm like, oh my God, wait, she's getting more character backstory other than just kind of being a beautiful woman? That's crazy. The show is fucking crazy. Just the way they generously give the one single female cast member a backstory um, is so above and beyond. I mean, they are pushing feminism forward hundreds of years. So she goes into her bathroom, which doubles as her dark room, and she collects all of her photos and negatives and throws them in a bag and disposes of them in the dumpster outside of her apartment. Brilliant. I was extremely I was extremely unimpressed by this. If you have incriminating evidence, you are not doing your best work by putting it in a trash bag and throwing it in the dumpster right outside your apartment? Could you not have burned the evidence? Could you not have driven the evidence into the desert? Is there nothing that you could have done to destroy this evidence better than just putting it in a trash can? Now you're this suggesting is, that women can drive in the 1940s? It's just, it's just <laughs> such a rookie mistake. It's such a rookie mistake and it doesn't come back to bite her because nobody has the, despite the fact that she is now tailed by 24-7 sur- police surveillance nobody has the gall to go through her trash what is not clicking for y'all what is not clicking so as she disposes of a bunch of her shit she saves one binder of photos which are probably the photos they're probably the blackmail photos and she puts them in a cute little carpet bag a cute little suitcase and she gets in a taxi and drives them over to union station and puts them in a lockbox. 
Teague follows her because he is a cop who has been tasked with tailing her. He sees what she does. He's very, very interested, more interested than I am. Then we see (laughs) that Mr. Skinny is also watching her. Now, despite this, he does not go through her trash. Now we go back to the police. Now, it's the next day. It is deeply insane to me that the police have no clue that Joe is the one that killed the comedian. They don't question him at all. This is just a very accurate example of the fact that police can get away with doing whatever the fuck they want and that no other police will ever fucking question them. This is the moment in the show also where I realized that it was much more about the LEPD than the mob, which is annoying to me because I'm much more interested in the mob than I am interested in the LAPD. Now we find out that Jasmine works at the Clover Club for Mickey Cohen. I'm sorry, she has a hobby and a job? I know. She's a modern woman. She's a really (laughs) modern woman, and she does get sexually harassed later in this episode. Now, she works at the Clover Club as a photographer, um, which again, like, what's not clicking for these fools? Like, they know she's a photographer. It's literally her job. But she just, like, point and clicks. She doesn't do anything super complicated. Um, So she goes to work at the Clover Club, and Mickey, the crime boss, tells her, you know, his condolences. He's very sad about her boyfriend who was just murdered. And she says, you know, thanks for the condolences, but you know I broke up with him months ago, so I don't really give a fuck that he's dead. Ice cold. (laughs) Don't cold bitch. Now, he tells Jasmine that her boyfriend was trying to blackmail someone. And he says this to her in a meeting in front of Bugsy Siegel, the hot, sexy mobster who then hits on Jasmine and insists that they will be going on a dinner date at some point in the future, which fortunately for us never happens. Um, What I liked about this scene is the way in which Mickey completely underestimates Jasmine. He truly thinks that Jasmine has nothing to do with the blackmail. Um, In fact, he thinks that she has no idea about it. And he also doesn't think that it's risking anything to inform her about the blackmail and let her know that her boyfriend was up to no good. Now, finally, we get a little bit of a fun scene. Sid, who you may recall from the beginning as, you know, one of the three violin guys, he's the psychopath, um, the sociopath, the violent killer. He's an assassin for the mob, um, as illustrated by the fact that his name is Sid. Right. Now, we see him outside of a pizzeria. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You're so fucking Italian. I am so goddamn Italian. It's insane. Um, there is spaghetti sauce in these veins. So <laughs> he, <laughs> I actually just made some pasta last night. Oh my god, I had pasta too. Oh my god. Despite the did fact that I Did you boil it yourself? I did, I did. I can't fit into, you know, some of my jeans, but I did scarf down some pasta and felt really good. I have lost a pound and a half since coming home. I hate to brag. (laughs) (laughs) I hate to brag about that pound and a half, but um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, How have your meal kits been? Um, Good. I just mostly have been having leftovers and then I've split two with Cornelia. Shout out. 
I miss her. And that reminds me, I owe her like so many recordings that I need to do. Um, <laughs> so Sid swaps clothes with a, an old loyal busboy. So this man is a busboy for the pizzeria, but he is loyal to the mob. He's a little sneaky. He's um, a brown noser and he kind of wants to suck Sid's dick. But instead- I will say swaps- Sid is handsome. He's a handsome man. He's like scraggly, craggly. Like he has a little something to him that I like. He looks like um, he would betray me and tragically break my heart, forcing me to listen to melodrama on loop. And that's the type of man that I'm interested in. Right. So he slops clothes with the busboy and sneaks into the pizzeria, very clearly packing heat. Um, his gun is just tucked into the back of his pants, clearly visible to everyone in the restaurant. Yes. Um, First, he gets called over by a woman who really wants her Parmesan cheese. I get it. So she's really rude to him. Then he's like, yeah, sure, I'll get your Parmesan cheese. Then he waltzes over to a table right across from her and commits a double homicide. It's really cute. Um, He just goes, you know, absolute whammy on two patrons and shoots them in the face in front of everyone. Then he's really sassy and gives the woman her Parmesan cheese. Um, She's terrified. Treat your wait staff well. This is what happens when you have a bad attitude to service people. So then he waltzes straight out of the restaurant and is not caught. We see that Jasmine is being tailed by 24-7 surveillance from the police. Um, Milo Ventimiglia has a meeting with Joe and he tells Joe to burn the photo that he's been carrying around in his wallet as long as he's known him. We find out that the two of them are war buddies and they were at the, um, they were in the war together. I want to say, <laughs> World sorry, War II? I just, <laughs> they're World War II veterans. They were together at the battle of, I want to say Guadalcanal. <laughs> okay. Um yes. Guadalcanal, in which Joe was a hero and like saved his entire group, including Milo Ventimiglia. Now I'm looking at Guadalcanal and it happened in nineteen forty-three. So and now it's nineteen forty seven. So it's only been like four years since they were released. So we have to assume that Joe has some PTSD. Right. So him and Milo are war buddies, but you know now Milo is a lawyer for the mob and Joe is a do-gooder cop. To clarify, they're now, not having steamy, steamy sex together. To clarify, because I know that's what you guys were all hoping for. Um, you know, Roberto and I weren't made to get what we want out of life. <laughs> and I think both of us have accepted suffering. And oh my God, wait, can I tell you this dream I had this morning that's like haunting me? Oh my gosh, I had insane dreams too. Tell me about yours. So I've been having a lot of dreams just like right before waking up. And it's devastating because mm-hmm. of course I get pulled from this fantasy world. But in this dream, it was me. But I woke up one year later, like one year forward. And I was in the arms of my live-in boyfriend. I was like living with my boyfriend and I had to tell him, I was like, um, I don't know who you are. I don't have any recollection of the past year. And he was so devastated, so heartbroken 
At one point, his face morphed into the cute blonde guy from Julie and the Phantoms. I know you've been thinking about him a lot. I have. And then I woke up just like so sad and heartbroken that my imaginary boyfriend is so hurt that my dream self couldn't remember him. Oh, what if it was real? <laughs> you know, like you, you're actually like you're falling asleep and jumping a forward a year. I mean, you can't prove that it's not. Well, I guess we're going to have to check back in in a year and I'll let you know. I had a really, really crazy dream last night, and I repeated it to myself when I woke up so that I would remember it. However, I did not write it down, and now I have no memory. Was it sexy? But now that I'm thinking about it, um, I I think it was about me getting coffee. With your new TikTok crush? Don't talk about him. Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I've been having a lot of anxiety dreams where I go to the mall, but I'm not wearing a face mask. (laughs) Um, it's because you care about people you care about people's safety and health and you're better than most it bums me out how quickly I have really mentally adjusted to the pandemic and the idea of being at the mall without a face mask on first of all I wouldn't even go to the mall at all now but the idea of going to the mall without a face mask on is like the utmost nightmare that my brain can concoct um (laughs) But I think that there was a cute boy, right? That there was something sexy going on because I woke up in kind of a good mood. Um, Anywho, jumping back into the show, Milo is telling Joe to burn the photo that's in his wallet because it's evidence that would incriminate him. Then we find out they're war buddies and that Joe always had this picture on him when they were fighting in World War II together. Finally, the episode ends with... um, a revelation. We see the picture, and the picture is of Jasmine and Joe together. And we find out that Joe and Jasmine used to be married, and that Jasmine is his ex-wife, which we would have never picked up on based on the way they talked to each other earlier in the episode. It It's clearly the foundation of this show, like that, that backstory, that this twist is supposed to be at the heart of the show, but I don't care. And frankly, I'm not, from a logical standpoint, I know it had to have been discussed, but it's, it just comes out of nowhere in the most unsatisfying way. I was just really hoping for a better reveal. Like I was, I really was on the edge of my seat, hoping that this picture was going to be like something really fucking crazy. And it just absolutely wasn't. So of course, connecting all the dots, If Jasmine's the one who took the photos and they were married, Joe's, you know, motive for killing Nash is probably, is, you know, to keep her safe, you know, probably not convinced that Nash could make a clean, could make a clean getaway. Yeah. And because he did hear them on the phone. So he knew that like Nash was dating his ex-wife the whole time. He was aware. Well, it's one of those things where he never saw her. And it's like, I'm sure she's not the only Jasmine in town. So I think he really took a gamble on the fact that Nash is dating a woman named Jasmine. And there are... Or he just has been watching her because he's a fucking creep and knew that she was dating this famous comedian. Oh, and it's like this hot bartender is like literally knocking at your door and you won't give her the time of day. This week, we have a super fun announcement. Our very dear friend Cornelia and friend of the pod that you may remember from our From the Archive episode has started her own podcast with her co-host, Carolyn. 
It's called Love Portions, and it's all about sensual, seductive cooking for two. It's exciting, it's really funny, it's unique, and it's certainly um, unlike any other podcast I've ever listened to. I'm super proud of it because I'm actually featured on it doing some narration. We're going to play their introduction slash trailer at the end of this episode, so stay tuned. (laughs) Episode three is called Red Light, and it opens on a flashback of... It's not a, a, it's like a few weeks ago and it's Sid, Bugsy and their thugs and they're tailing some guy. The boys in the backseat start getting nervous. So Bugsy, like a girl boss, has to set them straight by punching one in the face twice. Right. Um, I found this attractive. Um, I think that Mm. Ed. I'm not surprised from what I know about you. (laughs) <laughs> I found that Edward Burns in this role is a cutie. Um, I think his performance is so ridiculous. And him punching a guy twice in the face just for, like, being a little nervous, it did things to me. Right. You we need see, to learn to love yourself a little more. Um, not in this economy. Okay. <laughs> we see Bugsy get out of the car. And he aggressively murders the dude that they were tailing. It's really violent and it's all caught on camera from a nearby car where Nash and Jasmine are watching. So now we know what what was in the photos. It was Bugsy committing a murder that, you know, could finally send this criminal head mastermind to jail. Flash forward and we now know that the two men Sid just murdered at the pizzeria were the fools in the backseat of the car that got punched twice by Bugsy. The dots are being connected, you know. It's all making sense. We're getting the clear picture. These men were actually not, you know, some mobsters. They were informants. They were undercover. And they got murdered for, you know, running their goddamn mouths. So after the police arrive to the pizzeria, and then there's like this weird fight over police jurisdiction. And at the moment, it seemed like a huge waste of time. It seemed irrelevant to me. I didn't understand how, you know, it fit in with the plot. But ultimately, you know, it's meant to convey that the blonde cop, you know, the moral center, is really focused on taking down the mob, while other police captains are probably taking bribes. You know, they're probably corrupt. Just tisk. They have a meeting with the police chief who really wants to get Bugsy. So they decide to get really proactive and they bring in a ton of white men to the station to be mm. interrogated. And they're right. all asked about Nash's death and about the pizza guys. And one particular yeah. guy named Saul mentions off the cuff the word picture which sets off some alarm bells for the investigators you Mm. know they're like oh because they don't even know that there were pictures they're not aware that that was the blackmail material so everything is interrupted when sid walks through the door and he's ready to be interrogated and of course he gives joe the eye i was confused at first but then i remembered you know sid saw joe as nash's muscle the night he was murdered We cut to Jasmine, who's having coffee with Mr. Skinny. 
And she learns that Mr. Mr. Skinny, Mr. Skinny had been working with Nash on blackmailing Bubsy and he demands his cut of the money. Of course, she doesn't have it. So she's like, she had no idea that Nash was working with this guy in the first place. So she's like, leave me alone, you know, but this man is clearly deranged. So he really is a whole mess. Yeah. Back at the police station, Joe interrogates Sid, who claims to be home at the time of the murders with a woman, and he won't give up her name. And somehow this is a really solid alibi. Those are the words used. Solid alibi. Explain. I think it makes sense. Sid says, you know, he fights back. And he's like, you know, you guys have a lobby full of Jews when you should be questioning the Italians. At this point, I was not aware, you know, that this show was about the rivaling factions of the mob, you know, the Jews versus the Italians. I was not aware. And then, of course, you and I had a whole text conversation where we were so confused. Well, here's the thing. From my Wikipedia reading, I it seems like mostly the Jewish crime syndicates and the Italian mob were working together for the ultimate American crime syndicate. So they weren't really like full on enemies. So it's really unclear to me here that there's some kind of like feud going on. Is it between the Italian mob and the Jewish mob? It's, they didn't, they never clarify it for me. And I didn't really find the information that I needed online. You, you, didn't you say that Mickey was also Italian? So he's Jewish and Italian, but he's part of, in this show, part of the Italian group? I Question think mark? he's just, I don't think he is Italian. I think he's just Jewish. Either way. His last name is Cohen. Yeah, yeah he's, he's um, his family immigrated from Ukraine and he's Jewish. I mean, most of the people that we follow on this show, if not all of the mobsters that we follow on this show, are Jewish mobsters. We're not really following the Italian mob, but historically they worked together. And at, at very much at least Mickey Cohen and his crime family had a lot of influence on the Italian mob. Well, it seemed based on the show, it does seem that they are working together, but maybe not that they particularly are fond of one another. And, right. you know, there's some power struggles. Right. So that's kind of what we see in this episode is the power struggle. We cut to a police lineup and they have invited that busboy from the back alley who let Sid in to commit the murders. Yeah. And we see the Parmesan lady. Mm-hmm. He claims that he can't remember who, you know, who the killer was. He, he got attacked. He didn't see anything. But she is adamant that she remembers exactly who the killer is. And she points to a man. And the police cheer because they all think that she is fingering Sid. But she's not. She's pointing and to Sid the Sid was the actual perpetrator. Right, right. She's pointing to the man next to Sid. And the police are instantly disappointed. And I believe as an audience member, we're supposed to know that the dude she is pointing to is actually one of the investigators. But once again, I can't tell these men apart. So I didn't get it until later when I saw this man again. Right. 
But it's just like, once again, you know, they're choosing to portray female characters as um, blithering idiots. (laughs) Well, I think we're supposed to think that she was probably paid off or threatened. You think so? That's what I choose to believe. I honestly thought that she just didn't recognize it. I choose to believe that, you know, she got her coin. And she said, fuck the police. If that's the case, nothing but respect for her. We take a little trip away from the gutter, gutter land that is L.A. Mm. to the beautiful dusty desert where Bugsy is looking really cute in a blue suit and he's trying to sell the idea of Vegas. He wants to build a casino. He's really excited. And in the middle of his pitch, his, his boys bring out a man who has been tied up and gagged in the trunk which I really think is wonderful salesmanship. Mm. He throws this man in a ditch and then everyone lines up. There's about eight of them. They pull out their guns and they proceed to shoot this man about 50 times. Right. It's really masculine. It's really violent. But to me, it's like, why not just bury him alive with the concrete thing that is right next to you? That seems a lot more terrifying. That seems it's a lot generous. more painful. It's generous that they shoot him before burying him. In this moment, they also allude to Meyer, who is once again one of the three from the beginning. Finally, we now know where all three are. Meyer is in New York. He's not important. So I once again question why we had that opening in the first place, even though it was fun. Right. Um... I will admit, I didn't know that Las Vegas was such like a young city. I didn't know that it didn't exist in 1947. Mm -hmm. I am intrigued that it was sort of started by organized crime lords. And I am curious about, you know, what truth is there behind this, you know, dead body being in the cement foundation of Vegas? You know, like, is this true? You know, how many bodies are in the the concrete of Vegas. Well, you know, when you and I were in Vegas and we decided to go try to get into one of the clubs and I was wearing a really cute um, sleeveless glitter top and was turned away at the door for not being in a collared shirt, Mm. I knew that Vegas was criminal. I knew it then. I know it now. (laughs) (laughs) Joe confronts Jasmine. He knows that she took that she took the photos of Bugsy. Um, but their conversation is interrupted by Mickey, who was wondering if Jasmine knows, you know, any... It, she, Mickey wants to know if Jasmine knows if Nash knew any photographers. Right. Which is hilarious because he knows that Jasmine herself is a photographer. <laughs> right. But he says that, I guess his... his excuse for not thinking it could possibly be her is it has to be someone really talented because it was shot at night. So it has to be someone who knows, you know, how to really work a camera. Not just, you know, point and shoot and click like you. Right. So Jasmine plays dumb. She does a great job. And then Mickey's like, okay, fine, whatever. And he goes to the bathroom where he accidentally turns on a red light. Instantly, I'm like, oh, thank God. Like, something fucking juicy is about to happen, right? Like, it's about to go down. It's about to get real. It turns out that um, nothing happens because Mickey doesn't know what a dark room looks like. Right. 
Um, I guess he just thought that she may have been kinky. I'm not quite sure. Or maybe he thought that she was a dumb woman who accidentally bought the wrong colored light bulb. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> um, it's unclear to me. Mm. What, so Joe is hiding. He's still in the apartment. And he, and later Sid arrives. And he overhears a conversation between Mickey and Sid. And they're talking about taking out that busboy from the pizzeria. You know, they don't want any loose ends. Yeah. We, we jump to a park where said busboy is waiting for Sid, but instead he's met by three of Bugsy's men who attempt to shoot him down. He escapes right. and makes it to a nearby carousel, and it's the most exhausting scene of the show, in my opinion. Because I agree. To break it down in two sentences, this is how the sequence goes. The thugs chase the busboy to the carousel. Then yeah. Joe shows up and kills them. Right. That's what happens. And yet this show gives us about 10 minutes of the busboy crawling around, the mobsters not being able to find him. It's a carousel. Where do you think he is? They're like dropping on all fours. They're like, then Joe arrives and it's a big shootout. And it's, they're acting like this is the biggest fuck. I just, I was blown away. I was beyond confused. I was, my blood was boiling. You know? Anyway. I don't, I don't disagree with you in the slightest. I truly was confused by how hard it was for them to catch this guy on this carousel. It just should not be so hard. It just should not be so hard. And the, the scene is so long and it may, it's dizzying. I wasn't about it. Well, they're just acting like they're running around in a fun house, you know, like, you know, oh, mirrors, reflections, could it be him? Where, like, there's, it's a carousel. There's nowhere for him to hide, you know? And yet somehow there's everywhere. There's three of them. They just have to go around both directions. One can hop off and just stand from the outside and watch it spin, crouch, wait to spot him. It was Oh, it was maybe one of the craziest scenes that we've seen of any show, I would have to say. And we've seen some crazy shit thus far. We have. And you know what? It's not, it's not going to end anytime soon. (laughs) The episode ends, the police arrive. It's unclear what Joe told them, how he got this tip, but the busboy is alive and well, and he's just really devastated that the mob would turn on him. He's really devastated that these criminals who have proven to kill anyone and everyone would turn on him. And he agrees to testify. And the episode ends and we find out that Sid was watching this entire exchange. So he knows exactly that, you know, this busboy is about to flip and that shit's about to go down. And that is the midway point of Mob City. Now, we were pretty excited because episode four has a very intriguing title. Episode four is called His Banana Majesty. Such a good title. I was intrigued and I was disappointed equally. (laughs) Now, the episode Seems to be a running theme. (laughs) Yes. The episode starts with Bugsy wearing a cute blue suit that I was super stoked on, um, and he's getting arrested for murder. Now, he's very unbothered. He 
does not think that this murder charge is going to go through. And he tells the police that they're going to be in a world of hurt because of how they're going about arresting him. Now, Joe Teague and Jasmine are a little flirty on the phone. That's the only note I took on the scene, so I'm not sure what they were talking about. I have so many notes like that where I was like, um, I don't know what's happening, but someone looks cute or something happens. (laughs) Now, Bill... Bill, the upstanding moral center of the world, the police captain of the LEPD. I thought he was a chief. He's not. He's just a a humble captain. He looks like a total dumbass because he arrested Bugsy without sufficient evidence or probable cause. And now Bugsy is probably going to get released within like 24 hours and he's just going to look like a total schmutz. The only way for him to nail down Bugsy is to also arrest Sid, the sociopath, and get Sid to flip on Bugsy. And he has to do that in the next 24 hours. Let's, you know, guess. Let's just throw out, you know, predictions on whether or not he's going to be successful at this. Um, Do you know who could do it? Do you know who could fucking do it? Priyanka Chopra. Priyanka Chopra on Quantico could do it um what's her name in zero hour probably would have less luck than these fools oh my god no lila could do it (laughs) so sid is now i think it's alienating that we talk about our past shows sorry tangent um i mean i think we're talking directly to our audience thank god continue now the mob wars are really heating up and we see what I'm assuming is the Italian mob, come through with baseball bats. And this is a pattern again with the baseball bats and completely destroy an office belonging to Cohen's crime family. Um, They go ham with these baseball bats, just beating people and beating tables. It's super fucking crazy. And we find out that, of course, they have the go-ahead to commit all this violence because Bugsy's been arrested, and Bugsy is the head honcho of the Jewish mob. So with Bugsy arrested, the Italian mob can take over and destroy all these hoes. Yes. Mr. Skinny leaves a note for Jasmine in his own blood that says, money, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Why the fuck he would draw his own blood to leave this message? It just goes to show that he's a little bit tapped. Now, he calls Jasmine on the phone and he threatens her. Doesn't it kind of seem like a Lifetime movie moment, though? Like, you know a deranged, (laughs) like, hot male model who can't act would write that same note on, like, a married (laughs) housewife who had just had a affair. Money, (laughs) bitch. So then he threatens her over the phone and he's like, look at what I was able to do to myself. You know, if I'm able to draw my own blood for a note, just think about what I could do to you. So understandably, she's pretty scared. Now, Milo shows up at a casino that's being run out of a mansion. And we get a really useless non sequitur scene in which he is uh you know seen to have an affair with a beautiful woman who's like married to some guy at this casino um they have vibes they make out a little i think it's possible that she may be like bugsy's girl i could be wrong it's possible but it i thought she was married to some old dude (sighs) 
It's so unclear and it's so meaningless and it comes back never. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he's, he's at this casino to rendezvous with his lover. But while he's there, the Italian mob comes through to shut down the casino and they start beating people with baseball bats again. But Milo is a lawyer and he is a genius and he's handsome and he is just sublime in every way. So he's able to negotiate with these mobsters and get them not to break any noses and not to hurt any people. Basically, he talks to them and he's like, look, you know, do your thing, destroy the casino, but let's not hurt any innocent people here because that's not going to be helpful to you. So they just break the card tables and everybody goes free and nobody gets hurt. Then we get a really fabulous scene, um, by my estimation, of Sid playing violin. No, it is a really good scene. Now, of course, we know he knows how to play violin because he was one of the violin guys from the first scene of the show who, you know, ended up shooting up and stealing all that alcohol. Now, this is sort of like a callback to that scene because he's playing violin. It seems like he's in hiding. Um, well, and because he receives... the police are looking out for him. Yeah, they are. So he's just chilling out in hiding, playing his violin. And he receives a large box of roses, you know, long stem roses. But he opens the box and pulls out the beautiful roses. And underneath is, of course a big ass shotgun. Okay, so I don't want to speculate, but don't you kind of think that Sid and his right-hand man right-hand man are gay for each other? It's so interesting that you say that because no. <laughs> it did not cross my mind a single time. But I see that it crossed yours and I respect that. I love you. Love you too. So the cops are protecting their informant from the restaurant, who, of course, was the mob-affiliated busboy, who's now flipped on the mob since they tried to kill him. It's a tale as old as time, really. Right. So we see Bugsy in jail, and he's getting the royal treatment because he has an army of crooked lawyers on his side. So he's lounging in jail on a beautiful, plush red velvet chair. He's getting his hair and nails done. He's eating fine food, drinking wine, and chatting on the phone to Mickey Cohen. Jasmine seeks help from Milo Ventimiglia um, on the Mr. Skinny situation. Um, all we get from Bugsy when he's in jail is that Bill, the police captain, pulls the plug on the phone, and then Bugsy's lawyers threaten him. So we know that Bugsy is getting the royal treatment in jail, and he's probably just going to keep getting away with everything he's getting away with. And our moral center, um, Bill, the blonde, blue-eyed cop, is going to keep failing. <laughs> So Jasmine goes to Milo with help on the Mr. Skinny situation. Milo's like, why don't you get help from Joe? She's like, I've already involved Joe enough. You know, I, he's already done enough for me. I don't want to endanger him. It's like, what now, has he done? Murder someone? So Jasmine is, you know, lamenting with Milo. She trusts him, you know, they're friends. Um, and he decides to give her the money that 
Mr. Skinny is trying to get out of her, which is $5,000. Now, he's just giving this to her. He's not expecting it back. He's just a nice guy and he doesn't want to see her get hurt. Um, so he's like, look, just give the money to this guy so he'll get off your back. As this is happening, we see some dudes on the roof who we can assume are probably Italian mobsters, and they are bugging the office of the Clover Club. This is really fun to me because they drill, whilst Jasmine and Milo are in the room, they drill a giant hole in the ceiling <laughs> and dangle a golf ball-sized microphone. <laughs> And it's hidden by a light fixture. He, it's dangling next to a light fixture, which is apparently hiding it. Not once do Jasmine or Milo even look up. So I guess this is the world's quietest drill. And also, they're cops. Oh, they are? Yeah. Oh. So, like, really, that just like, goes to show how fucking stupid I am. So they're cops. Um, um, no, I think it goes to show that literally no one on the show everyone on the show looks they the same. all look the same so the cops hear part of jasmine's conversation with milo um one of the cops does and he doesn't tell the other cops what he heard um and then we just move on and that was the scene jasmine gets on the bus where she is once again harassed by mr skinny he threatens her life and she gives him the five grand that she just acquired from milo but he's not satisfied because he got word that the deal that Nash was striking wasn't for 10 grand. It was for 50. So it turns out Nash was trying to play him the whole time. Now, this just goes to show that Joe technically was correct. And the comedian Nash was definitely not going to get away with his blackmail scheme and truly was an idiot. Despite that, <laughs> I'm not of the opinion that he deserved to die. So now Mr. Skinny wants the whole 50 grand. Obviously, Jasmine doesn't have 50 grand, so she's pretty scared that he's going to kill her. So she says, I'm going to get the keys to the pictures instead. The keys that are, you know, they're in a lockbox, but the photos are in the lockbox at Union Station. Then you can blackmail with the photos and get your full 50 grand. That's what I can offer you. He says, you have 24 hours to get me these pictures. But Jasmine doesn't have the keys to the lockbox. Joe does. Do you remember her giving the keys to Joe? He takes them because the night that he was tailing her, he then confronted her and was like, give me the keys. Was that in okay. my episode that I was supposed to recap? It may have been mine. So Joe has the keys to the lockbox with Jasmine's blackmail photos. So she just has to get to Joe and get the keys and then get the keys to Mr. Skinny in 24 hours. It's at this point where Jasmine's storyline is clearly kind of like a B plot just to like give her some screen time. And she gets to play with some of the characters. You know, we see her with Mickey. We see her with Milo. Despite it being a B plot, to me, it's the most interesting part solely because she is a delight to watch, I would say, out of everyone yeah. in the show. I, I like her acting. I think she's charismatic, but I do think that her plotline really only exists as motivation for Joe. 
Correct. Because obviously he loves her and he wants her to be safe. And so everything violent that he does is sort of because of Jasmine. And that's the whole purpose to her existence. It is one of those things um, where, you know, in these noirs, the, the femme fatale is such a, a fun character. And I did wish that they gave her like a shade of maybe being really sneaky and maybe being a liar in like episode two. And then she just becomes really earnest and kind of just like, yeah. you know, is, is stuck I in mean, the situation. And I did wish that they made her a little more conniving, a little more delicious. She has agency and clearly she's comfortable lying, but she's not prepared for her life to be threatened. Like this whole situation with her, it does kind of suggest that she really didn't know what she was getting into when she got involved with Nash, right. because now that her life is under threat, she's totally tweaking. Um, whereas she really should have expected this. Milo is, you know, chatting with his mob fellows and he suggests a peace summit between the two mobs which is totally a great idea and is totally gonna work <laughs> so he suggests a peace summit and then we cut to mickey mickey of course being one of the head honchos of this jewish crime group he has invaded a mob run banana factory now, this banana factory is run by the Italian mob that have been antagonizing him and his people throughout the episode. He is really mad because when they were earlier with their baseball bats attacking one of his offices, they killed one of Bunny's friends. Bunny is an associate of Mickey who runs Bunny's Jungle Club, which is a club where they often have meetings and go about their criminal activity. Bunny's really pissed about his associate dying, and because of this, doesn't want to work with Mickey anymore. So that's pissed Mickey off. So Mickey's shown up at the banana factory to wreak some havoc. And we see him with his lackeys, with his fists, beating up some of these mobsters at the banana factory. And he's focusing his energy specifically on one guy, who he proceeds to, um, I'll just put this bluntly and briefly, rape with a banana. This is very disturbing, very unexpected. Um, it happens all on camera, which kind of just goes to show the, the distance that people have with like male on male rape. I think it's treated often as like not as disturbing as maybe like a woman getting raped. Of course, women get raped on camera all the time and it's extremely disturbing and often sensationalized and often gratuitous and I personally don't like to see you know women getting raped on tv but I feel the same way about men getting raped I do, I, I was really surprised that they were like so graphic with this um it's disturbing it's sad it really makes you no longer root for Mickey you know despite the fact that like who doesn't love to root for like a crime lord unfortunately now that he has raped someone on camera I have some emotional distance from him and I'm no longer a fan. My favorite show, American Crime, season two, Regina King has this great line where the season's about sexual assault and she says, you know, boys don't do that to other boys. And I could almost see them thinking that by portraying this, it's not, it's not rape. It's, it's, it's just another grotesque thing that, you know, it's, it's at, like someone cutting or shooting or whatever. That was just like, yeah, no, oh, I agree. that's how it was like depicted to me. 
I mean, I think that's kind of what I meant to be getting at is like, there's this like distance between like men assaulting each other that somehow we're not supposed to register that this guy getting like assaulted with banana is sexual assault. Like we're just supposed to register right. it as assault, just, you know, like, like the same as him getting beaten up, but by textbook definition and like our understanding of, you know, what constitutes a rape, like this is a sexual assault. Yeah. And that's kind of what I mean when I say that there's like a cavalierness with which like guy on guy, you know, sexual assault is depicted that I just felt like this was treated really casually. Like this yeah, visually is agree. just the same as like, like this is somehow the same as, as Joe getting pistol whipped, which Correct. I'm not personally, like I'm not trying to draw any like, like I, I, I'm not going to compare like different types of violent assault because it's no. all bad. But I do think there's something particularly violent about sexual assault that the writers may not have identified with this banana scene. Correct. But I think, you, a, yeah. I, I think a woman watching this, I don't know, like if you're used to seeing, because I, I'm used to seeing, uh, unfortunately, like sexual assaults against women in entertainment. When I see this scene, I instantly register it as sexual right. assault because like, that's what that is. But I understand that that was not like, that's often something that, TV executives or whatever treat really cavalierly when it's men that are the victims. Right. Now, Sid shows up at Joe's house and pistol whips him. And that yes. is how the episode ends. Yes. I'm going to run to the ladies' room and relieve myself, and I'll be uh, right me back. Me too. Oh my God. Ugh, we're so fucking uh, in sync. RP cycles. Are you ready to jump into episode five? Uh, episode five is Ox Pepper. <laughs> Jesus. This show. Don't worry, y'all. It's almost over. And I uh, look, I think that that middle section, it lagged because it was kind of just like them revealing unsatisfactory un twists that were unsatisfying. But I, I enjoyed it towards the end, maybe because it was ending, maybe because I didn't have to write notes on the last episode, whatever it was. By this point, I'm like, you know what? I know what the show is. I'm choosing to have a good time, whatever. I mean, look, the fans are loving this. <laughs> the <laughs> listeners are eating this up. Episode five, Ox Pepper, opens in 1944. And we hear gunshots over a black screen. And then it immediately cuts to a shirtless Joe. He's looking really good. Um, he wakes up and immediately starts choking his then wife, Jasmine. He's looking less good. Mm. Mm. Um, <laughs> I like him a little bit. Like, I think he looked, you know what? I'm just not even going to continue. Just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to just censor myself. So, of course, she wakes up, she's sobbing, and eventually he snaps out of the trance, the, the PTSD dream. And of course is devastated that he is hurting his wife. So he, you know, he runs to the bathroom, he has a breakdown. Um, and I'm left with one question and one takeaway. Mm, okay. The takeaway is now that he is done being violent towards his wife and is crying on the bathroom floor, Joe is once again hot. My second takeaway, mm. or my second question, my, wow. Takeaway, then question. My now question is, their room was lit neon red, presumably because there's a neon sign outside their window. How the fuck do they sleep? 
<laughs> I um, I mean, I often fall asleep with my pink light on, actually. Uh, powerful. But you also don't seem to wake up with light, which is fascinating because you have a, <laughs> a light alarm clock. <laughs> you don't seem bothered um, by light when you are sleeping, whereas I feel like the sun, like a single ray enters my room and my eyes are wide open. That's why I have to get a sleep. I mean, I'm just cursed with the ability to sleep through everything but an earthquake. Um, it's my burden to bear. Uh, well, keep fighting. Keep fighting the good fight, babe. Flash forward to 1947, and Sid is torturing Joe. He has him locked up to, he has him tied down, whatever. And he demands to know where the safe house is. And he tells him that, you know, if the informant, if the busboy makes it to the court the following day, then Sid is going to tell everyone the truth about who killed Nash. Cool. One, so Sid one, knows. Right. At one point during this exchange, um, somehow race comes up. I don't remember why. Maybe it's it has to do with, you know, the battling tensions between the Italian mob, the Jewish mob, and what seems to be maybe the black mob in between, who, like, works with them, question mark? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm yeah. clear. Um, Sid says he doesn't see color um, because all blood bleeds red. Genius, mind blowing. Oh, the way this never before doesn't see race. Anyway, Sid ransacks Joe's apartment and finds an old photo album where he finds, you know, Joe and Jasmine's wedding portraits. And with this new information, he leverages Jasmine's life. And at this point, you know, once again, no one suspects that she took the photos. He assumes that Joe killed out of jealousy. <laughs> I love the powerful. degree to which they all underestimate Jasmine. I know. I know. At the safe house, it's unclear how the location of the safe house was revealed, but a pair of cops show up, supposedly for their shift, but they're clearly like Mickey's men in disguise. And there's a big shootout where, you know, the busboy tries to crawl out of the window, but he's too damn slow. He gets shot. A detective gets shot and dies. Um, The other one is injured, but the injured cop is able to take out one of the mobsters and injure Sid's right-hand man, who I choose to believe is his lover. I love that. Jasmine arrives to her apartment, or Joe's apartment, unclear, and finds Sid torturing Joe. And Sid has her call 911. He's going to turn himself in, but he threatens Joe and Jasmine. They better fucking cooperate with his story, which is that Joe kidnapped him. He got free, and then there was a big fight. And that's how he is explaining Joe's injuries. His mind, he's so, so smart. We jump to a tender moment between Joe and Jasmine, and she's stitching him up. And, you know, she doesn't think that he could be paying for her mistake. And there's, there's some line exchanges in this scene where no shade, because once again, I think she's one of the best parts of the show, if not the best part. There's something in her delivery that I couldn't tell if it was bad acting or if it was her character trying to keep a secret, but it's like there is no secret. So I don't, I don't... <laughs> So it's unclear. I guess she's she's trying to manipulate him 
into bed so that she can steal the key, the train station locker key. Yeah. I guess is what we're supposed to get out of it, but it's just such a bizarre moment that's just like, girl, what? like they didn't let you have another take. Um, anyway, so they kiss. He, you know, he's wary, he's nervous, but she has no expectations. You know, they're not getting back together. It's just one night. So, you know, they go on about their, their sexual business. They get handsy. Yes. The Peace Summit is held at the Clover Club, I think. It's the Italian mob, it's the Jewish mob, it's possibly the black mob who's kind of working in between them, who's trying to sort out the peace. And they want to call a truce, um, but they demand that the Italians pay for the funeral of the guy that got killed. And then everyone agrees. It's, It's a little heated, but everyone eventually agrees, and we move on. The morning after... Almost too easy. Yeah, they're like, keep it moving, keep it moving, keep it moving. It's the morning after, Jasmine and Joe. You know, they're in bed, and it's a scene that I realized in this moment that Jasmine reminds me of Catherine McPhee playing Karen, playing Marilyn in Bombshell the Musical, (laughs) with this line delivery where she says, you know, Joe, maybe you'll get a job selling vacuum cleaners and I'll learn to cook. I think this is a genius line. I think I'm really glad it made it to the edit, you know? Anyway, she tries to steal the key. I believe she's unsuccessful. Maybe she is successful. I didn't take no because at this point it's like, wrap this up, y'all. Right? Right. The cop from the shootout, one of them survives and his name is Teddy. And unfortunately during the attack, he lost his glasses. So he can't ID anyone. Uh, Another obstacle. Convenient. In court, um, Bugsy and Sid are released because there isn't enough evidence to hold them. (laughs) Great. Once again, easy. Mm. And the blonde cop, you know, the moral high ground, uh, he takes the blame. It's all his fault. He shouldn't have rushed trying to get make Bugsy arrested. Right. Great. At the Clover Club, Mickey finally learns what a dark room looks like. <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm honestly God. really fucking proud of him. He goes to like talk with the photographers, and he's like, "Why? Why is there a red light?" You know, and they're like. Uh, because it's a dark room and we need to develop the photos. So he finally fucking connects the dots. He's like, oh my God, it was fucking Jasmine. I'm a fool. Speaking of Jasmine, Mr. Freaky shows up at her, or Mr. Skinny. (laughs) Mr. Freaky. He is freaky. Mr. Skinny arrives at Jasmine's and he has a little girl tied up, like one of the neighborhood girls. And, you know, he's Mm -hmm. threatening her life. And at this point, he, again, he wants that 50K. So he needs Jasmine to be the middleman and get him his money. Jasmine arrives at the club and Mickey questions her. You know, he thinks that he's fucking got her on the ropes, but like, she's not fucking bobbed. She has a little girl that she needs to save. She needs, you know, she has a madman that she needs to get off her back. Mm. While this scene is going on, it's raining outside. And like you said, there was a giant fucking drill holding a golf-sized mi- microphone dangling in the ceiling. Mm. At this point, the light yeah. fixture 
that it was hidden in begins to fill with water. So great fucking job, y'all. Um, Jasmine, you know, is once again really overwhelmed. She's trying to save this little girl. She's like, oh, you boys are making me dizzy. And Mickey pulls out a red light bulb and she tells him to screw it in a socket. Um, because once again, like, yeah, I took the photos and she admits to everything. She doesn't want the money. She'll give him the fucking negatives. All that she wants is a little pest control. And she tells him to arrive at the train station before her and Mr. Skinny do, and they'll find their pest. Hmm. Get him, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The way she's such a girl boss. Um... The police that was listening in calls Joe on the DL to tell him, you know, Jasmine's in trouble. At this point, I didn't know that this policeman, who I've never seen before, and Joe were friends. Um, It's really convenient. Mm. Kendall from Succession, with his Hawaiian shirts, is finally back on our screen, and he tries to follow Joe, um, but Joe knocks him out. So, sorry, Kendall. The episode ends with Sid and the boys... Jasmine and Mr. Skinny all arriving at the train station, but when she opens the locker door, it's empty. So I think we should jump straight into episode six because it picks up exactly where episode five leaves off. I mean, I have nothing else to say. So, so Mr. Skinny assaults Jasmine at Union Station in front of everyone because, you know, he's pissed that there's nothing in the locker. The mob is, of course, there with Sid. Joe pops up out of the corner and pummels the fuck out of Mr. Skinny and gets him, you know, in a chokehold or whatever, de-escalates the situation between Mr. Skinny and Jasmine. And Jasmine puts her hairpin in the grenade that Mr. Skinny threw. (laughs) Yes. Right? Was it him who threw the grenade or was it the... Mom. Mr. Unclear. No, he he takes out the grenade and he's like, "I'm gonna get the fuck out of here, and y'all are gonna let me, or I'll blow this switch up." Yeah, but of course, Joe, you know, de-escalates the situation, tackles Mr. Skinny, and then Jasmine puts her hairpin in the grenade, and crisis is averted. Thank now, God. Now, Joe Joe turns Mr. Skinny over to the mob instead of arresting him. You just caught a guy assaulting your ex-wife and you're just going to give him back to the mob, even though you are a cop. Well, you know, in his mind, do I want this man to go to jail or do I want him to get shot 50 times? I mean, I think ultimately I don't um, give a rat's ass. However, (laughs) I just want Joe's behavior to make sense. Like, I just keep trying to make him make sense and he just doesn't. So, I mean, I guess ultimately what we're supposed to understand about Joe is that he's not loyal to the mob and he's not loyal to the police. He's only loyal to one person and that is Jasmine. But he doesn't really care what Jasmine wants. He just cares that Jasmine stays alive. So ultimately, right, he's only loyal to himself, but he loves Jasmine. He wants to possess and own Jasmine. Thus, you know, he'll do anything to keep Jasmine safe. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, It's like, was the real evil Joe all along? So Joe, you know, leaves with Jasmine because she's in she's in danger, girl. 
And Sid says, <laughs> um, Abby just saw Ghost for the first time, everyone. <laughs> Ghost is really, really good. Um, so Joe and Jasmine leave together, and Sid is like blown away that Jasmine's going with Joe. And he's like, Oh my God, she doesn't know. You didn't tell her. So Jasmine and Joe leave together, and Jasmine is like, What is Sid talking about? What do I not know? Tell me the truth, Joe. Joe. So Joe. So Joe decides to tell Jasmine the truth. And this scene honestly had me vomiting inside of my mouth. <laughs> he tells Jasmine um, he killed Nash for her. He saw the pictures. He knew that she took them. He knew that it was going to put her life in danger and that the only way around this would be to kill Nash because Nash wasn't looking out for her best interest. Nash was not going to be able to keep her safe. He was going to blackmail using the photos she took. They were going to find out she took the photos and she was going to get killed. So she slaps the fuck out of him. You know, she's slapping him, which is, of course, the only violent thing women are allowed to do is slap men in the face. She's slapping him. Um, I mean, I'm sure it hurts because he's already really fucking bruised from getting pistol whipped by and tortured by Sid earlier. Now, he stands by what he did. And he says that he would burn down the world for her if he had to. Then he forces a kiss on her, which was really uncomfortable and awful to watch because she obviously is really angry and doesn't want to kiss him. And he like forces this violent ass kiss on her. And it's just like, honestly, just, I hate this bitch. Like, fuck joe teague he's dead to me he was never alive to me right i mean really fuck this guy so he forces a shell of a man i think like is this supposed to be romantic like that's what frustrates me is that am i supposed to be rooting for this guy i don't really know what the writers want me to be doing here i just think he's repulsive i think he's an idiot i think he's violent i think he doesn't need to be fucking forcing a kiss on a woman that doesn't want to kiss him I think he is supposed to be, you know, a tragic hero type, you know, the man that would do anything for love and the the man who is willing to let love ruin him, corrupt him. I think that's who Joe is supposed to be. I don't, I don't know if we're supposed to want them back together. I think, I think we're supposed to feel the pain of them not being able to be together, you know, because of his actions. I mean, ultimately, babe, like, she left you and you need to move on. So, you know, she, she should go away from fuck the Milo. She should fuck who? Milo. <laughs> I, uh, yes. So <laughs> she pulls away from the kiss and gets on the train. And that is the last we see of Jasmine. <laughs> she's, you know, escaping from the violence. I don't know where she's going on this train, but she's leaving L.A. so that the mob doesn't kill her. Hopefully Santa Fe. So Joe has the pictures. He's the one that took them out of the lockbox. No fucking shit are any of us surprised. He had the key. Of course, he has the pictures. He wants to trade the pictures for Jasmine's guaranteed safety. Now, Bill, remember, the cop, he's under heat um, because obviously he's failing at his job. And he needs to bring in Mickey as soon as possible. You know, he needs to get evidence so that he can arrest Mickey Cohen. Milo and Joe have a meeting in which, you know, Joe says that he told Jasmine the truth and that she slapped him. And, you know, she just doesn't get it because she's a woman. Right. (laughs) 
she doesn't understand cold-blooded murder because she's a lady. Um, and Milo is like, you know, you should just be on, you should just join my side. And Joe is like, would I really want to be on the side that kills cops? And it's like, it's, I'm really struggling here because Joe seems to think that he has the moral high ground because right. Milo, you know, is on team cop killer. But the thing is, is that Joe is on team killer cop. He's a cop that has murdered people in cold blood. But um, as the is the first episode will remind you, Abby, he didn't kill for jealousy or for money. He killed for love. And you know what? That makes everything okay. So my thing here is like, if you're so fucking high and mighty, why don't you turn the pictures over to the police? Because these pictures, did we ever say what the pictures were of? <laughs> yes. Bugsy you committing a yeah, murder. So... You know, these pictures are of Bugsy committing a murder. So this is the evidence that they need to arrest Bugsy and take down the mob. So if you're so fucking high and mighty, like, wouldn't it protect Jasmine if Bugsy and all of his homies were arrested? But this doesn't occur to Joe, and he's not going to turn the pictures over to the police. So he would much rather, you know, make negotiations, like use the pictures to make negotiations with the mob. So as much as he says he's not on the mob's side, he really is. Um, the cops, you know, this cop buddy of Joe's knows that Jasmine is his ex-wife. Um, and he tells this to Joe that he figured it out because at the beginning, when the police were interrogating Jasmine, Joe brought her a cup of coffee. And of course, you know, when you bring someone a cup of coffee, the first thing you do is ask them how they take it. But Joe didn't do that, which of course the cop was able to deduce that this was because he already knew Jasmine's coffee order. The way that this cop, who doesn't have a name, is smarter than everyone on the show, apparently. I just, you know, I do have to go out on a limb here and say that I don't think that cops are that smart IRL. <laughs> but I could be wrong. You're, you're sus? So, I'm sus that this is just maybe not super realistic. <laughs> now, Bill goes to see a, a fallen comrade, a fallen cop. Teddy. Um, who's in the hospital. What's his name? Teddy. Teddy. He goes to see Teddy, and he says that he wants to bring Teddy in on a new mission, um, a police force specifically for internal affairs. He wants to clean up the police from the inside out and bring down the police chief. And Teddy's in. The way that this show is showing us both the invention of Las Vegas and internal affairs. Wow. Revolutionary stuff. Now, we get what is ultimately probably my favorite moment of this series, which is <laughs> um, Meyer. We're finally getting introduced to Meyer, who is, of course, the... Um, the crime lord from the beginning who ended up being, you know, a crime guy in New York. Um, but he's come to LA to meet with Bugsy. And he finds Bugsy at a brothel. He knocks on the door and is greeted by a beautiful woman. Did you recognize her? She's Katie Seagal. She is the hot lesbian from Haunting of Hill House. She's, of course, <laughs> married to the creator of Hill House. 
um, series. She's an excellent actress. She's also seen in um, Hush. Hush, in which she plays a deaf woman who's victim of home invasion. She kind of looks like the girl in Bionic Woman to me. She does. Yeah, she does vaguely. I really like her. Um, I mean, obviously, I think she's beautiful, but I also really like her on Haunting of Hill House. Um, I think she's just like a super interesting character, and I like that series a lot. Um, she is in about 30 seconds of this show. <laughs> and she is in lingerie. Yes. And doing a somewhat mediocre New York accent. Yes. So we see that Bugsy, you know, is at the brothel getting his freak on and the women, you know, flag him down and he comes to the door naked and holding a guitar over his junk. I really liked this um, shot. Right. I could not guess why. No clue. (laughs) So Meyer says, look, we have to, you know, big man, we've got to have a meeting. So why don't you fucking put some pants on and come meet me? at like this hotel or whatever. So then we see Bugsy having this meeting with Meyer and Meyer's men who have come from New York City to talk about Vegas. They don't fuck with Bugsy's plan. Ultimately they're wrong because Vegas is gonna be huge, but they don't like Bugsy's style. They don't like the way he's going about this. But Bugsy says, you know, we're gonna make billions in Vegas. This is going to be the most incredible cash cow for us. And he just keeps trying to make his case for Vegas and his plans for Vegas. Meyer is like, look, dude, you're really wasting your time here because the plug has been pulled. We're not funding you anymore. It turns out they've been funding his whole development in Vegas. We're done. You're not going to receive another cent. And in fact, you owe us a million dollars that apparently your girlfriend stole. Now, Bugsy finally references the scene at the beginning of the show and how amazing it felt when they, you know, learned to play the violin specifically so that they could, like, blow a bunch of people up. But this callback and this, you know, nostalgic story is not enough to convince Meyer. Meyer has no faith in the Vegas plan, and he needs Bugsy to shut the fuck up and give them a million (laughs) dollars. Bugsy throws a huge fit, like a little piss baby. He flips tables, he shatters things, he acts very childish, and he accuses the whole New York City mob of being nutless old women. Powerful point. So he storms out, and Milo is with him, you know, his little lawyer friend. And they storm out of the hotel, and he's saying, you know, like, I don't need you. I can do Vegas all by myself, baby but he's in a bad fucking mood. And Joe is waiting for him in the lobby. And he's like, we gotta talk about this Bugsy, you know, we gotta fucking make this deal. And Milo advises him, dude, this is not a good time for you to confront Bugsy. Like I'm telling you, dude, this is not a good move. Don't wait, why was that like impression really spot on? You think? Yeah, thank you. I sensed it. That means the world, because it just flew, like it just, you know, flowed from me naturally. I mean, you, you're a natural. Duh. So Joe, of course, is so pigheaded. He is a fucking putz, and he completely ignores Milo's very good and useful advice. Now, he... Um, 
goes up and confronts Bugsy and says, Bugsy, you know, we got to make a deal. You know, I'm going to give you these pictures. Joe does. You might have said it, just cut out. Sorry. I paused because I like had a complete brain fart and just kind of like left my body for a minute. Oh, what did you see? I saw nothing. I felt nothing. I was nowhere. Oh, bliss. I know. You're jealous. (laughs) Now. (laughs) Joe. Joe confronts Bugsy. Bugsy is not fucking having it. And him and his buddies pummel the fuck out of Joe. They've got him down on the ground. They're kicking the shit out of him. They're kicking him in the face. He's already gotten beaten up like very recently. So he's still fucked up in the face. Like he's not having a great week. This is kind of all his doing. Like I really can't be feeling bad for this guy. He is getting himself into this shit. Um, Bugsy kicks the absolute shit out of him and then says, look, I'm going to kill Jasmine. I'm going to fucking kill that bitch. And you need to decide if you want, you know, to be in the coffin with her. Make your decision on where your loyalties lie. Basically just saying you need to hand over the pictures and no, you're not getting Jasmine's safety. You're just guaranteeing your own safety because I don't give a fuck about Jasmine and I'm going to kill her. Right. So Bugsy leaves with his guys. and Any woman who can shoot at night who knows how to operate a camera well, is too dangerous to stay alive. That bitch is dead to me, babe. So Milo was like, look, Bugsy, I'll follow behind in the taxi. And he goes up to Joe. And we find out that Joe saved Milo's life three times. He counted. Um, One of those times without Guadalcanal, but apparently he's also saved his life two other times. So Joe's like an amazing self-sacrificial hero. (laughs) now from what i'm seeing what from what i'm seeing from this show the only person who's really saved any lives is milo when he de-escalated that casino situation dead ass so to me he might actually be the most morally upstanding character joe's on the ground and milo says you know you're a fighter and you've saved my life three times but i'm telling you now that this is a fight that you can't win and you need to stay down Um, Stay Down happens to be the title of this episode. So cut to a deranged Joe shows up at Bugsy's house and absolutely mercs the fuck out of him. (laughs) (laughs) He He is incapable of listening to reason and good advice. He has a, like a giant shotgun. He shoots through the giant windows in the front of Bugsy's house. He kills Bugsy. He kills Bugsy's buddy that's sitting in the living room with him. It's the most graphic murder on this show. And it lasts, I would say, as long as the carousel scene. It lasts so fucking long. He's shooting two people through a window. It should be one and done, bitch. But it lasts forever. I honestly blacked out and left my body in the middle of the scene. I was like tired of this shit. I'm so disappointed in Joe. I mean, he is not a hero. Um, I think he's an idiot for pulling this shit. I just feel like Um, how come this huge crime lord who is a hothead and has clearly fucked over a a ton of people, how does he have this giant window and no security in his backyard? That Joe could just walk in and shoot him through his window. At this point, it's like you're you're asking for it. I mean, I see your point. I see your point. I mean, I think it's that he feels like he has 
the security of his reputation, you know, that people are scared to fuck with him. So he doesn't even need protection because he is his own protection, you know, but ultimately it just seems like a mental, like a plot hole in his own life. So Joe kills him. And then we see Joe show up at the crime scene with all the cops showing up at the crime scene. Once again, um, the cops don't accuse him. Nobody is fucking putting anything together. Um, and the best part is that he is bloody. He's bruised. He looks fucked up. He's dripping in blood because earlier that day, Bugsy beat him to a pulp. And I'm sure there was witnesses. So what, let's just think here about motivation. What motivates somebody to commit murder? Who was the last person that Bugsy violently assaulted? Oh, well, it was Joe. And yet we're all playing a fool here and acting like we have no fucking clue who killed this guy. <laughs> Cops protecting cops. I'm done. I'm over it. This is some bullshit. So, you know, the murder, whatever, goes unsolved. Milo informs Joe that he's made everything entirely worse for the mob situation. He's done no good. Um, Killing Bugsy, you know, that doesn't even cut off the head of the snake. That really just kind of tickles the snake. It it just pokes the snake. Because now Mickey Cohen is going to assume control of the L.A. mob. And he's going to join forces with Meyer, and they're going to solve Bugsy's murder, and they're going to come after you. And you've just made everything worse. And assumingly, you know, had the show not been canceled, it would have probably you know, taken more from the book that it was based on and really showed the struggle, you know, of Mickey coming into power and Bill, you know, becoming police chief and... Yeah. Um, So Sid gets a hold of the blackmail photos and burns them. Mickey assumes control of the LA mob, joins forces with Meyer to solve Foxy's murder, and that's the end of the show. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it didn't really feel like a finale to me. I mean, it felt like a mid-season. I can't tell from, it just says it was canceled after one season on the wiki. It doesn't say how many episodes they originally intended the show to have. I think that it was these six episodes. I like think that this was the, the whole first season. Yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah. I think it's an expensive Is show that- and I think... Is that typical for TNT to have six episode season? No, TNT being cable, I think they typically, you know, have the the 10 to 12 episode seasons as far as I know. I mean, maybe The Closer got 22, but this was definitely, this was a gamble. Had Boardwalk Empire come out yet? When did Boardwalk Empire come out? I think that this was before Boardwalk Empire. After? Let me look. Boardwalk Empire is... Oh, no. Boardwalk Empire started in 2010. Had five seasons. So maybe this was like TNT's attempt at doing a Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, I could definitely see that happening. Um, Yeah. Um, I I don't think six episodes is particularly typical of TNT, but it seems... I understand the reasoning behind it. Yeah. So it makes sense that they were like trying to do a, a a Boardwalk Empire. Boardwalk Empire does, as recurring characters, feature Meyer 
Lansky and Bugsy Siegel as as like recurring characters. So they do make appearances on Boardwalk Empire. I'm not seeing Mickey Cohen on the list, but I think it's just because like the show doesn't take place in LA. So it's not really giving you like West Coast yeah. mob. Um, I'm sure, I mean, this show, just by our criticisms, got generally positive reviews. Like not overwhelming critical praise, but like it, like it wasn't panned. Um, I'm sure it was just like cost versus viewership. Interesting. Because I mean, I I'm sure yeah, it just wasn't it wasn't getting enough it wasn't getting enough viewers to to justify the cost for sure. I'm looking now. I've never watched Boardwalk Empire. I mean, ultimately, if it doesn't have like a lot of female leads like I'm not really interested in in it um which it probably doesn't but it does take place during the 20s and stars Steve Buscemi and I obviously love Steve Buscemi and I've seen the first things that he does and it's a lot more I don't know I I liked the first episode it it definitely feels like it has a higher budget and it it also it seems sharper it seems like it's HBO. Yeah, so it's intelligent. It's won primetime Emmy awards, etc., and but, it stars the likes of Steve Buscemi. The, the, but the thing about this show is, it had so much going for it, right? Like, I, I think that the budget isn't minuscule, right? Like, they they could afford to do some stuff. It really just came down to like really kind of confused, murky writing it seemed like there was the definite struggle of wanting to be historically accurate and have these historical figures and these certain events and not maybe knowing how to how to implement these fictional characters but who's to say there was really nothing i liked about it (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna be like dead ass with you like Like, to me, this is, like, my least favorite thing we've ever watched. I mean, we're not Target Demo. (laughs) No, we're absolutely not. But it's not like I don't like crime dramas. I do. Like, I absolutely do. Um, I just like, you know, to enjoy what I'm watching. Um, Should I do a little Where Are They Now? Yeah. Kind of situation or what happened to them? So, Joe Teague. Is Joe Teague real? No. Joe Teague, our protagonist, is not a real person. He was fictional. However, the actor who played him is a method actor. So in a way, you know, Joe Teague lived (laughs) 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 in the heart of this actor. Um, Sid is also fictional. Um, however, he's based on Hookie Rothman, who was a real hitman who was part of the Cohen crime family. But ultimately, like, he's a fictional character, but he's loosely based on this real hitman. Um, Mickey Cohen was a real Jewish American crime lord. His family worked closely with the Italian mob, which we kind of see happening here when they have this peace summit. Um, so he kind of worked with the National Crime Syndicate, which is a sort of loose term that refers to like all the mobs together as one. Um, I did think it was interesting that he went to prison for tax evasion in 1951 
and I was like released. all the things that he did, this is what they could get him I think on. That's, I think that's pretty common with, like, mobsters and crime lords that, like, a lot of the time the thing that they're able to get nailed on is, is tax evasion because that's the only thing that has, like, a paper trail. Right. So they held him for four years, and then after he got released, he became an international celebrity. Ah. Um, <laughs> he then he like ran a bunch of businesses and stuff he also did an interview with time magazine with um billy graham in which he talked about how much he loves the christian way of life that's hilarious i will say that jeremy luke as mickey cohen did have a flavor a pizzazz a star power socialite essence if you will I liked him. He had charisma. He's a, he was a known germaphobe and he had like a hand washing thing where he was like always fucking washing his hands, which they sort of loosely portrayed here. Um, and he's been in other films. Um, he was in that movie, like his, he was depicted in Gangster Squad, um, where he was played by Sean Penn. Um, and then he was in another movie where he was portrayed by Harvey Keitel. So, you know, he's a famous guy and he has been portrayed by big name A-list celebrities. Um, I also thought it was interesting that he was sent to Alcatraz in 1961. Right. And he was also for tax evasion. (laughs) And he's the only prisoner who was ever bailed out of Alcatraz. Uh, So that kind of just goes to show like his power. Right. And then he was like in and out of prison a lot after that, but he died out of prison in his sleep in 1976 from stomach cancer and he was 62. So what a life. That's, you know, that's sort of the rundown. Meyer Lansky was a real mob financier, which I guess kind of checks out with the show because he's funding Bugsy's Vegas development. Now, he um, developed an international gambling empire after the events of this movie and had casinos in Vegas. So ultimately, you know, the Vegas development went forward, as we all know, because Vegas exists, and Meyer Lansky was greatly involved. He was also um, very, very influential on the Italian mob at large, um, despite he was a Polish Jew whose family immigrated from Russia, but he had huge influence on the Italian mob. He died peacefully at the age of 80 after being mob associated for over 50 years. He was never once convicted for anything greater than illegal gambling. Uh, Good for him. Bugsy, um, there's like, his Wikipedia page is really long, but he died as depicted on the show by an unknown assailant at his house. Um, he his murder was never solved he did technically invent the concept of las vegas but he never reaped the benefits you know he did not live to see the empire of vegas rise um we don't know who (laughs) killed him irl um but other than that like he was known to be like really handsome um and was famous while he was active with the mob because he was just like hot (laughs) i love that now the last guy that i wrote about is of course bill who is the cop his real name was william something whatever um he's of course the cop that is depicted on the show as wanting to take down police corruption ultimately 
he was successful in his plan to take down the police chief, and he became the police chief in L.A. During his time as police chief, he did supposedly cut down corruption. Like, that was something that did happen while he was the chief. Um, but also during his time as police chief, he was accused of much racially motivated police brutality. LAPD, um, the LAPD is genuinely one of the police departments in this country that police that commits the most murders um, to this day. So very cor corrupt, you know, racially motivated police force. He was a part of really establishing that legacy as LAPD being the most racist police force. So we can, you know, thank him for that. Um, <laughs> he, like his entire squad was accused of a lot of racist police brutality during his reign. Um, he has a lot of quotes saying several racist things about black and Latinx people. He is quoted as saying this quote, I really like, this is all in his Wikipedia page, by the way. So it's very much known that he was a racist. They just kind of failed to let us see that on this show. One of the most iconic quotes attributed to him is, I think the greatest dislocated minority in America today are the police. <laughs> the overwhelming grief that that quote gives me, the anger, the pain, the confusion, um, the ultimate disgust, it cannot really be put into words. Um, but yeah, just to sort of put the nail on the head of his legacy, no perpetrators of white supremacist violence were ever brought to justice during his tenure. And he was known for largely refusing to hire black cops and for saying that segregation wasn't a problem. So, you know, when I said at the beginning that he looked like a member of the Hitler Youth, can I really be argued with at this point? <laughs> No. Uh, well, may he rot. And, you know, we can just, you know, I, I can sum up my opinion of this show with just a solid ACAB, words that I live by. Um, and then I think really colored my relationship to this show because I was never rooting for the cops, nor was I particularly rooting for the mob. So I guess ultimately I was only rooting for Jasmine, but she just wasn't given enough agency. I can sum up my feelings about this show with a simple retweet. Would you like to give your incident report? Ah, uh, the time has come for the Mob City incident report. <clears throat> the date of cancellation is February 10th, 2014, 54 days after its last episode aired. Though the series was preserved on Amazon Prime and available for $6, I'd say rigor mortis has set in. The victims accompanying clothing and effects include one zoot suit, one snap-brim fedora, and a single red light bulb. The immediate cause of death, excessive bleeding. I'd classify the manor as a homicide, presumably at the hands of too many indistinguishable white men, as a consequence of a lack of imagination or diversity in Hollywood. In this case, maybe Joe should have just sold vacuums. <laughs> Abby, do you have any final words for <laughs> That was really good. Um, wow, I mean, every time we get to the end and we get to, you know, 
the inevitable eulogy that I have to give, you know, it is often really hard and it's often really emotional for me. And I can feel myself getting choked up right now. I can feel myself really getting emotional. You're such an advanced but, empath. Thank you. But the emotions that I'm feeling right now, I, I can really only liken to um, relief. <laughs> freedom I feel joy I do um, you know some people uh, I'm, I'm not going to name any names but you know ultimately sometimes people deserve to get sick and die um, <laughs> I feel that Mob City came it lived maybe a longer life than it deserved and it went peacefully, unnoticed, quietly at its end days, you know, at a very appropriate time. And I think all of us here can agree that death is, it's dark and it's scary, but perhaps Mob City has just gone on to the next great adventure in the afterlife. And I wish it better things in the life to come. Well, that was very, very sweet of you. Thank you. Before we wrap up, you know, at the end of our Bedford Diary saga, we ranked the five shows that we have covered on this show. And we came to the conclusion um, that NYC Prep is at the fifth spot, the show least deserving of getting canceled, followed by Brittany and Kevin Chaotic at number four, The Bedford Diaries at number three. Zero Hour at number two, and The Beautiful Life, colon, TBL, in the number one spot most deserving of getting canceled. Now, Abby, I am curious to know, is, are one of these shows about to get knocked off our list? I suggest bumping the list. Knocking New York City prep off mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. moving everything down a notch. Mm -hmm. And putting to, Mob City at what I, spot? Ultimately, you know, emotionally, my knee-jerk reaction is to put Mob City in the number one spot. Because it is so, it, to me, the most offensive thing, which is that it is so flagrantly mediocre. <laughs> that being said, that being said, you know, when we come, when it comes down to production value, potential for longevity, you know, the stylishness, the costumes, blah, 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 I'm going to say that TBL ultimately is more deserving of getting canceled. So my suggestion is that we put Mob City in the number two spot, bumping okay. zero hour down to number three and the rest. I am going to have to come for you a bit because I ultimately feel that it deserves to be at the number three spot. I just think that... The number what spot? The number three spot. Okay. I think that when it comes down to it, the acting in Mob City was slightly better. The aesthetics were slightly more enjoyable. And it only had six episodes, so it had less time to fester, you know, in my soul compared to what really felt like an attack on my being when we watched Zero Hour. You know, I think what is what this is going to come down to is truly um, you know, a difficult crossroads for you and I, because I'm going to die on this hill. 
I think Mob City, I mean, I, I think Mob City is worse than Zero Hour. I do. Because ultimately, I got a little bit of something out of the story of Zero Hour, and I was, like, involved. Like, as much as I thought Zero Hour was stupid, I found myself by the end of the 13 episodes getting involved in the story and actually feeling like there were stakes. With okay. Mob City, I never once felt the stakes. I never felt involved in the story. I never felt like they wanted to involve me in the story. I didn't feel included. Zero Hour had female characters. It had diversity. It had creativity that I don't think that Mob City possessed. You know what, Abby? I'm going to give this one to you. I'm going to give <gasps> this one to you, but just know that one day there will probably be a show that I will die, that I will, you know, it'll be a hill that I'll die on. Right. So, I mean, I think you've made the right decision here because do you really want to die on the hill of defending Mob City? Absolutely not. I think, I think you can predict that there'll be a show further down the line that you want to defend with more vigor. And I want to give so, you the space to do that when the time comes. Oh, well, I'm so excited then to officially, you know, debut with a new ranking with, at the number five spot, Brittany and Kevin Chaotic. Number four, The Bedford Diaries. Number three, Zero Hour. Proud of you, girl. Number two, Mob City. And, you know, what may be a really difficult show to knock off our list at the number one spot, the Ashton Kutcher produced, Sarah Paxton led, The Beautiful Life, colon TBL. Follow us on Twitter at DearlyDepodcast and follow us on Instagram at DearlyDepartedThePod. Those are our two main socials where you can keep up on photos from the shows. We do Would You Rathers. We do rankings. We do fun little things on our Instagram story and the Twitter, which is mostly just me talking shit. <laughs> stay safe, stay healthy, wear a mask and have a good one. Mwah. Hey, Carolyn. Yes, Cornelia? Do you, as a woman, believe the best way to a man's heart is through his stomach? Medically speaking, absolutely. Okay, well, I know someone with a more romantic approach. Her name is Yvonne Young Tarr, and in 1972, she wrote a book all about it called Love Portions. I bought it as a teen, and would you believe I've never cooked a recipe from it? Well, I've never heard of this book, and I've read more than 10 books. I mean, as far as I can tell, Love Portions had basically zero cultural impact, so now it's just a time capsule and hopelessly out-of-date love letter to erotic cooks everywhere. Erotic cooks? Hey, that sounds like us. So I was thinking we could do a podcast where we cook and love our way through a bunch of 70s recipes and romantic advice. I'm sensing many liqueurs and breakfast meats will be involved. It sounds disgusting. I can't wait. Me neither. And how better to evoke the mood than the author herself, the text as it reads, the introduction to Love Portions, a cookbook for lovers. Are you in love? Or do you hope to be? Do you dream of romantic, candlelit dinners? Long, lingering breakfasts in bed, his or yours? Sexy snacks on mornings after? If you have absolutely set your heart on sharing your life with a lover, 
whether it be for an hour, a day, a week, a year, or forever, then this book is for you. Because this is a cookbook for lovers. Its sole purpose is to provide recipes for two that are easy to prepare, spectacular to look at, and delicious to devour. There are, in this wide world, those who prefer to eat and drink and sleep alone, who prefer bran flakes for breakfast and TV dinners when twilight slips quietly into evening. There are those to whom cooking for a beloved is servitude, and erotic cooking is a scandalous idea. To those, I say, pass this book by. But to you who believe eating can be a sensuous experience, especially when it follows, precedes, or takes place during the lovemaking ritual, to you I recommend and dedicate this book. Love Portions is available wherever you listen to this podcast.